0: You're listening to Robert Wright's
1: Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Sean. Hi, Bob. How you doing?
0: Hanging in there. How are you doing?
1: Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. Uh, It appears both on YouTube, where you're encouraged to smash the like button and on uh, any any podcast feed available where you're encouraged to rate and review especially if you're favorably inclined and you are sean mirsky um author of a brand new book i think this is gonna uh, show up the day that this that this podcast shows up uh, if it goes according to plan because it's coming out this tuesday is that right
0: that's exactly right big day it is eight, eight years in the making
1: Eight years. Well, it shows. It's 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 very well researched, very well written, very thorough. Let me tell people what it is. It's called We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. Let me uh, also tell people a little more about you. Are you still a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University?
0: I am. They keep extending it, so I'm not going to say no.
1: No, don't. Uh, and you previously served in the U.S. Defense Department under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, And you, what, have a master's degree from the University of Chicago in international relations or something? You went to Harvard Law School. Is that all true?
0: That's correct. That's all true.
1: So uh, this is a book that, on the one hand, is uh, about uh, kind of a history of uh, relations between the U.S. and Latin America, but it has a lot of relevance to contemporary issues, I would say. Um, And in fact, uh, one dimension of this is uh, kind of uh, built into the impetus of the book, I gather. From reading the acknowledgments, I gather that Jack Goldsmith, who, as it happens, has been on this podcast, is a professor at Harvard Law School, um, made a suggestion to your, or or made an observation or something in your presence that ultimately led to this book. uh, And what was that?
0: Yeah, so uh, he, uh, in a lot of ways, spurred this, um, but the one of the main things was that he had a colleague at the, uh, at the Pentagon who actually um, I think they were corresponding about kind of fun research topics for a paper I was looking at. And one of the topics that uh, was proposed by this Pentagon colleague was uh, the question of how does China's behavior in the South China Sea today compare with our behavior in the Caribbean uh, a century ago. Mm -hmm. And I didn't end up writing on exactly that topic, but it sort of stuck in my head. And it sort of fed into a broader issue that I'd always been interested about, which is, why is it that rising powers tend to be aggressive and expansionist, meaning they tend to pick fights with other great powers, they tend to bully and otherwise meddle in the affairs of their neighbors. And in general, they tend to make a nuisance of themselves as they try and dominate greater and greater slices of the world. And so Jack's, uh, comment about, you know, or passing along this comment from his Pentagon colleague made me kind of stuck in my head and, uh, indirectly led to this book, uh, starting a few years later.
1: Okay. And although you didn't focus on exactly that topic, what you focused on does have relevance to China and its current policies. And what would you say about that before we get into the history part, um, how comparable would you say their behavior in their region and their motivation for their behavior are to ours uh, with respect to Latin America um, for much of our history?
0: So it's a good question. It depends a little bit at what level of abstraction you look at the uh, question, because I think at the highest level, what China is trying to do right now is exactly what we tried and successfully did a century ago, which is essentially to become what political scientists would call a regional hegemon. And just to define terms, regional hegemon is essentially when a great power successfully neutralizes or otherwise eliminates every other great power from its neighborhood, Uh, which sounds like not a big deal, but it's actually very, very hard to do. Uh, Great powers keep trying to do it and keep failing to do it. Uh, And the only great power that's actually ever done it in the modern era is, in fact, the United States. Um, And so today, I think, you know, China's ideal world would be one in which, as far as East Asia goes, it is the only great power. Uh, The United States has pulled back from the region, uh, at least militarily, almost entirely. And it really isn't capable of coming back in in any serious way. Um, And other kind of great powers or near great powers like Japan, India and Russia are all sufficiently, I guess, far behind China that there's no real question as to who's kind of militarily dominant. And so I you know, I don't think there's any real doubt that that's what China's aspiring to do um, in the same way that frankly, any great power or any power would aspire to do that if it's possible. It's just that very few powers have that ability. All that said, obviously, you know China you know the modern day is very different from a century ago, and so a lot of things have changed, nuclear weapons, trade, technology. And so the way China is going about it, I think, is at least slightly different. And it's also much earlier in that kind of trajectory than, um, well, than certainly where we are now.
1: Okay. Now, I may have missed something. Did you say that its goal, China's goal, is to get the U.S. to withdraw militarily from the region or the U.S. already has?
0: No, its goal is to accomplish. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah,
0: The goal is goal in the sense that I think that's what the Chinese would all things considered prefer. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not necessarily a sort of like, we'll go to war over it tomorrow. It's not necessarily a, let's accomplish this in the next week type thing, but their ideal kind of end state is a region in which they're essentially the only great power.
1: Mm-hmm. And in, as far as the reason for wanting your region to be like that in, in the book uh, you depict um, America's motivation for its many, interventions in Latin America. And I think I'm now convinced that there are more of those than the average American is aware of in the history of America. There have been a lot. Um, You depict the motivation as being fundamentally defensive. Uh, Would you say the same thing about China?
0: It's a little hard to say in the sense that, you know, we don't have access to the Chinese archives. We don't know exactly what discussions are going on kind of internally. Uh, I think what we do know Is the following: that first, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and the Gulf War, and in general, much of what was happening in the 1990s, that the higher levels of Chinese policymaking have been extremely concerned about the United States as a threat to their, to essentially their regime, Uh, and for obvious reasons, that threat has not ameliorated. You know, in the ensuing decades, if anything, I think it's kind of currently peaking, and I expect that that threat will continue to go sharper and sharper from the threat
1: itself as well as the perception of it.
0: Uh, I I would say both. I mean, in the Mm -hmm. sense that certainly, you know, the discussion inside the United States these days is very, you know, I I don't know if anti-China is the right word, but very hawkish on China. And so Mm -hmm. if you're you know, a policymaker in Beijing, and you're looking at this, I mean, I think the the obvious takeaway here is it's not just a perception issue. It's an actual increasingly growing threat. And certainly the United States is acting in ways that, you know, directly uh, harm Chinese interests. And so uh, from the Chinese perspective, I think it's completely natural that you have that sort of defensive inclination and that you're starting to think more and more and more seriously about how to uh, kind of combat that mm-hmm. and compete with the United States. At the same time, One of the points that I make in my book is that while these motivations, these defensive motivations were, I think, primary in explaining the U.S. behavior in explaining U.S. behavior, it's obviously not the only factor. In a couple of cases, it wasn't even the main factor and other, you know, uh, factors and motivations can enter the picture. And so, you know, looking at someone like President Xi, I don't know that we see the same sort of kind of uh, civilizational empire kind of rhetoric that sometimes, you know, President Putin uh, brings out. But certainly you could imagine a world in which there's a sort of ideological bent to sort of some of Xi's uh, 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 foreign policy and some of the actions that China has been taking. Mm
1: -hmm. As long as you brought up Russia, how would you compare uh, Russia's kind of policy behavior motivation in its region, uh, in particular in places like Ukraine and and Georgia, where there have been interventions um, with the U.S., uh, conduct and motivation d- during the, the part uh, you cover in your book?
0: Yeah, so I mean, very similar in the sense that Russia has not, I think, reacted very well to uh, the expansion of NATO closer and closer to its borders. That's obviously an issue you've uh, been highlighting for a while now. Uh, um, again, this is one of those things where it's it's hard to say exactly what's motivating Putin. On the one hand, the NATO enlargement, I think on its own is the sort of factor that certainly would be consistent with the kind of behavior we're seeing from Russia, which again is not that different from the way the United States acted a century ago. Uh, at the same time, Putin also says a lot of other things that sort of seem consistent with kind of more ideological factors in terms of the way you know that he's interested in recreating a greater Russia and all that. Um, the primary differences, of course, is that the United States was much more successful than uh, Putin uh, has been and currently is. Um, I wrote, uh, back in 2014 when he first annexed, uh, Crimea, that this was a terrible and horrible strategic mistake for Russia. Mm. And I think the ensuing years have kind of borne that out. Um, he's more and more being forced, I think, uh, with his back against the wall in terms of, you know, the, if anything, you know, NATO has grown stronger, it's coming closer and closer to his borders. And I think a lot of the actions he's taken have frankly encouraged that, um, And so part of that is just a differential in strength. Russia is simply not uh, the sort of great power that the United States was a century ago. Part of that, too, is that it's just facing a different set of strategic circumstances, and in particular, a much more determined competitor. Uh, The United States, I mean, the thing that the nation has always had going for it ever since 1776 is that it was a single power in an entire hemisphere and that all of its rivals were across the ocean. and those rivals had a lot of interests in the hemisphere, but none of them were as strong as the interests they had back in Europe. And so most of U.S. history has been taking advantage of sort of internal European conflict and dissension to uh, expand American interests. Uh, Russia doesn't have that same luxury in the sense that, number one, all of the other powers in Europe are aligned against it at this point. And two, the United States, although it's simultaneously focused on the competition with China, is also, I think, very interested in Russia, and is certainly able to be more focused on that competition than uh, than uh, its rivals were a century ago. So you think it was it was a tactical, not
1: strategic, blunder to seize Crimea? In terms of the motivation, it seems like the threat Russia perceived was at least as direct as most of the threats America is reacting to in your book, in the sense that you've got a neighbor right on its border and and it has a very important naval base in the neighbor. It's technically a long-term lease, but is a legacy of the Soviet Union. And uh, there is what looks like from its point of view, a coup or a, in any event, it's a revolution, a, a deposing of a president who was kind of friendly. Uh, and there's in some sense, at least U.S. support for what just happened. And the U.S. has professed the intention to have that neighbor part of NATO and so on. I mean, that's like, Compared to most of the things the US has been reacting to uh, by intervening in Latin America, that's a, a much more direct threat, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, c- certainly, I think from, from Russia's perspective, that's probably the right way to think about it. I mean, Americans obviously see it a little bit differently because uh, I've, no, at least I've noticed
1: you, that. I've noticed that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, part of it is, I think for most Americans, you know, the idea of NATO enlargement, it seems sort of. I don't want to say innocent, but it doesn't seem or at least it hasn't seemed targeted at Russia until very recently. Um, but, you know, part of the the uh, what makes international politics diff- difficult is that one, it's very com- difficult to communicate intentions in a sort of uh, deliberate way. And number two, those intentions can just change over time. And so, you know, from Russia's perspective, maybe NATO expanding and, you know, the uh, 20, uh, 2000 odds and 2000, early 2010s was not aimed at Russia, but Russia doesn't have any way of guaranteeing that once NATO's up at Russia's border, someone doesn't change their mind and suddenly NATO's turned into an anti-Russia alliance again. And so from Russia's perspective, I think it's understandable why they're concerned that, you know, countries like Georgia and Ukraine would be potentially offered NATO admission.
1: Right. And that leads to one kind of abstract question before we get into the history. Um, You know, you said it had no way of, of being assured that NATO wouldn't ultimately be a threat, whatever the motivation behind expansion. And um, this is a common thing. I mean, there's a term that doesn't appear in your book, I think, uh, which is security dilemma. I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with it. You studied uh, under under Mearsheimer at Chicago, and that refers to the fact that, um, you know, one nation, uh, it will... It will read something that another nation does as either offensive in intent or potentially offensive. Uh, and will react to it in a way that it sees as defensive. But then the other the other country will, will see it as either offensive in intent, misreading it, or see it the motivation accurately and but also see that potentially this this new thing, this new military base somewhere could be put to offensive use. And so they react and and you get a spiral. And, um, you know, they're, they're a, a very related thing is just kind of what I would call hypersensitive threat perception, or certainly, you know, a pretty acute, let's say, threat perception that's very common on the part of all nations. And these things can lead to what, to get back to Mearsheimer, a phrase you do mention in the book is the tragedy of great power politics uh, an allusion to, to one of his books. Um, and I guess my, my question is you, you seem, I want to ask you, are you, do you feel you're defending America's history of intervention in Latin America? You're certainly sympathetic to the motivations of the people doing your understanding of why they did what they did. And, and you're, you know, you're, you're not really up for a lot of second guessing of them, I, I would say. But, but correct me if I get any of this wrong. But but the, but but the then the take home question is going to be if somebody doesn't quit acting like this, the world is going to blow up. Right. I mean, you know,
0: uh, yeah, well, so uh, let me take those questions, I okay. think, uh, in the order they were given. Uh, I definitely would not characterize this book as a defense of uh, American imperialism or interventionism or anything like that. Um, you know, I think the the, the book itself is I, I don't think takes a particularly controversial stance on any of the actual things that we did, uh, and it also doesn't really dispute the effects that those things had on the you know the people that were uh, affected by them, right? And so. Um, Instead, I think the the place where the book perhaps departs from the conventional wisdom a little bit is the, you know, the motivations for what actions were taken. I think it's worth drawing a a line under the fact that, you know, regardless of whether we are acting for defensive motivations or out of corporate greed or a spirit of imperialism or white man's burden or whatever, uh, didn't really change, you know, how it felt from the perspective of whichever country was getting invaded and all that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see the book as a defense in that respect, um, I also, I I guess I would quibble a little word, a little bit with the word sympathetic. I do think that it's important to understand the motivations of American policymakers and to understand why they were acting the way they were acting, Um, because I think it's easy to caricature uh, uh, sort of unpleasant moments in our history um, by sort of ascribing it to kind of like a cartoonishly evil sort of sense of of, of why people acted. And, you know, I can understand the reasons why that's done, but I think it ends up actually making it more likely that the situations repeat in the future, because you end up in a situation where you sort of assume, well, you know, United Fruit or the banana companies were running American foreign policy and we don't have banana companies anymore. So we don't really have to worry about that. And I think that sort of misunderstands the lessons of history, which, you know, doesn't repeat literally, but oftentimes rhymes as the saying goes. And so from my perspective, I think the the goal of the book was to give sort of an honest take of why Americans were acting the way they were acting. Um, you know, not necessarily in a way of sort of forgiving what they did, because I I don't really think the motivations necessarily enter into that calculus. I I frankly don't really take a normative position on that. It's just a purely kind of explanatory question. Um, and I suppose the final thing that's worth saying on that is. That the, I, I, I in the book I was I think careful or at least I tried to be very careful not to necessarily take what Americans uh, policymakers were saying at face value, in the sense that like oftentimes they made speeches and they said things and frankly oftentimes those speeches said things that were much more uh, benign than I think what was going on behind the scenes and so it was not unusual for American policymakers to be making speeches about how well, we're going to go into these countries and we're going to make them better because we care about our neighbors and things like that. And frankly, I just don't think that was a significant motivator. I think that was one of the kind of like post-interventionist kind of uh, rationales. Um, instead, I think the book sort of tries to emphasize what these policymakers were saying behind closed doors in private letters to their you know families and to, uh, you know, in their diaries and things like that. And the message that you see there is, Consistent with the fact that these that these policymakers were largely acting based on sort of security based rationales and not either for ideological reasons or for kind of economic reasons, which tend to be the sort of prevailing conventional wisdoms. So anyway, long explanation there to your question about uh, blowing up the world. uh, Yeah, I mean, so as you 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 mentioned that
1: uh, you're going to take a normative position there, you're against that.
0: I am against blowing up the world uh, as an inhabitant of the world, though I have a vested interest, so I don't know if I can be trusted to give an objective answer. (laughs) Not
1: not for uh, altruistic reasons, but but you are against blowing up the world. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, So, I mean, look, you mentioned that uh, I quote at the end of the book or or, uh, allude to the title of uh, Professor Meir work, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. One of the sort of unhappy lessons of the tragedy of great power politics is that there's there's no solution, right? I mean, you have these for a variety of reasons, you have these certain dynamics, these structural constraints in international relations that lead to uh to invoke uh the name of this podcast, uh, su- you know, uh um suboptimal sort of outcomes that aren't positive some that aren't even zero sum, they tend to be unfortunately a negative sum. And so um I do think that there's you know obviously room for cooperation. And th- there are ways, as the Cold War itself showed, of avoiding, you know, nuclear apocalypse. Um but the you know to answer the abstract question with a bit of an abstract answer, I, I think it's challenging to avoid sort of the spirals and dynamics and structural constraints that tend to lead to the sort of sustained competition. But I do think there are better and worse ways of handling it, and sort of being cognizant of what's really motivating international politics, I think, tends to be the most effective way to make sure that uh, the worst outcomes are avoided.
1: Okay, so uh, with all that as prelude, let, let's um, launch into the history. Uh, I guess one transition would be to say that uh, the U.S. kind of had the luxury of operating in an environment where the spiral that 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 we just described—the kind of positive feedback cycle that can get you a negative outcome—was unlikely to lead to anything catastrophic because we we were so much uh, bigger than any other neighbor. So anyway, it starts with the Monroe Doctrine before the Civil War. The the actual interventions don't get started much until a- after the Civil War.
0: Um. Uh, with the, well, I guess the Mexican American War is a fairly big exception. That's a, yeah, that yeah, world, that's but, not
1: nothing. Um. So, yeah. so why don't you, uh, tell us why we started intervening, um, in and maybe start with you can start with that as an example. There are different kinds of interventions, but why don't we why don't we start with that?
0: And and what was the logic? Sure. So the the basic argument I make in the book is that. The United States faced what I think could fairly be called a structural sort of problem when uh, three conditions arose. And in the book, I call this the problem of order. Basically, the United States was concerned whenever there was an area of strategic importance, which for purposes of this book is essentially the Caribbean and Central America and to a lesser extent, the rest of the hemisphere. uh, And that area of strategic importance was under foreign threat in the sense that the United States perceived that uh, one of its great power rivals, usually in Europe, although Japan pops up uh, in the example of Hawaii, um, when one of its great power rivals was interested in expanding in that strategic, uh, strategically important area. And finally, the strategically important area was itself uh, very unstable, uh, you know, politically, it's, you know, civil war and revolution, economically, it's wrecking a massive debt, in general, what in today's terms we would call failing or failed states. Uh, and I think when you have those three conditions operating together, an area that's strategically important, under foreign threat, and vulnerable, uh, that creates a problem from the United States' perspective. Uh, the basic problem is, is that you, you have a power vacuum in this area and that you have someone else who wants to fill it. And so what the United States, I think, was trying to do during the period in the, that I look at in the book is as much as possible prevent European expansion by sort of resolving these power vacuums. and the United States tries to sort of stabilize and strengthen the weak states around its borders. Uh, at first it tries to do this indirectly through trade and uh, diplomacy and sort of these indirect measures. But first this doesn't really get the results that the United States needs uh, particularly on the kind of timescale it needs. Uh, and second, uh, how, the how does it? How, how do you mean that? How does it fail to do that? The- well, in the sense that, you know, the United States, for instance, uh, Uh, lowers tariff barriers, right? Uh, and Kind of signs these like reciprocity treaties with some of its neighbors. Uh, And the goal is that if we have more trade, these uh, nations will be more prosperous. And if they're more prosperous, they'll be more peaceful. And if they're more peaceful, they'll be more prosperous. And you'll get this sort of mutually reinforcing cycle that leads to relatively stable political institutions and less opportunity for European expansion. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't turn out that way. I mean, in the sense that number one, signing a reciprocity treaty with the nation You know, in 1890 doesn't mean its problems are going to be fixed by 1891. Um, And as it turns out, in quite a few cases, these reciprocity treaties just by virtue of the United States' sort of economic size lead to sort of economic dependence on the scale that actually ends up breeding more problems than it fixes. And so Cuba and Hawaii are kind of the archetypical examples of that problem.
1: Okay. So, um, uh, Well, yeah, go ahead. No, um, please. I, I actually, well, let me let me interject. Uh, one more question that's about the past, but relevant to to uh, the current moment. Um, I, you know, I, I was I hadn't realized that we had a tendency in the 19th century, if I read you correctly, to characterize part of the threat we faced uh, from Europe as ideological, in the sense that they were monarchists, right? Like today we are framing our foreign policy apparently largely as a global war between democracy and autocracy for better or worse, by the way, the answer is worse, but that's the way we're framing it. Um, and, uh, I I was surprised by the parallel and, 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 uh, but, but that's kind of built in from the beginning. It sounds like.
0: It is, although it kind of fluctuates, I think, in how important it is. Um, certainly when the united states is for instance declaring the monroe doctrine in 1823 and things like that uh the like the, you know distinction between monarchy and democracy is really at its height uh and i think rightly so i mean i think the european monarchies at that point were legitimately concerned by the ideological threat that was posed by the united states um and that's true certainly all the way through the civil war um france During the U.S. Civil War, invades and occupies all of Mexico, uh, and installs uh, a Habsburg prince on the throne of Montezuma. Uh, And essentially, the the explicit reason to do this is to basically start making the hemisphere safe for monarchy. Um, Emperor Napoleon III basically has this idea that once Mexico is re-monarchized, he's going to just start moving south through the rest of the hemisphere and turning all these Latin American republics back into monarchies. Um, And so there is very much that sort of ideological conflict at that point. I do think it ameliorates a little bit in the coming decades. Uh, you you see flavors of it in the sense that obviously in World War One there's a lot of sort of rhetoric about Prussian autocracy and, you know, and certainly, of course, the phrase to make the world safe for democracy comes from Woodrow Wilson at that time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it doesn't, I, I would say that it's not the, the the ideological factors end up, I think receding a little bit around the turn of the century. It's mm-hmm. less, that and more, kind of just pure security kind of interests.
1: So in that case, uh, so France has this kind of uh, Habsburg proxy. I mean, for reason I don't know enough about history to understand why it wasn't just a French guy, but he, he apparently wasn't right. Uh, and and oh. uh, and then we in that case we basically support a revolution to get rid of him,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, so the the uh, the then president of uh, Mexico, Benito Juarez. Um, was essentially already, you know, fighting a, a civil war against uh, Emperor Maximilian, the, the Habsburg prince. Uh, we end up mostly just uh, providing his forces with support and sort of uh, launching, you know, uh, I don't want to say launching a proxy war, but it ends up being a proxy war. But uh, that was very much a conflict that we didn't necessarily instigate so much as helped uh, far as finish.
1: Okay, and then. What? Why don't, why don't you maybe list several kinds of interventions? You know, several interventions that represent different kinds of of interventions. Uh, in yeah. say, in between the Civil War uh, and uh, well, you can go all the way up to World War One if you want, if it'll help.
0: Yeah. Well, and so it starts out, I think. Um, You know, up until like 1898, the Spanish-American War, there's not that much. There are certainly a few, but there's not as much in in terms of direct sort of. um, The United States is not as interested in sort of meddling around with the internal sovereignty of other nations. The one exception is annexation, which always ends up being sort of the last resort for the United States in response to security threat. And so in uh, I have a chapter in the book about Hawaii where. For a variety of reasons, we were very concerned about Hawaii uh, getting annexed by Japan. And in response, essentially, we end up annexing Hawaii ourselves. Um, But starting in the Spanish-American War, what ends up happening is we're left with, uh, we're occupying Cuba at the end of the war. And on the one hand, we promised to give Cuba its independence at the start of the war. On the other hand, we're very worried that if we just give Cuba its independence, uh, that uh, it's going to get snapped up by another great power like Germany. Uh, uh, Basically, on on the theory that Cuba is unlikely to stay stable for long. It's going to descend into civil war, and once that happens, Germany is just going to come in and to scoop up the pieces. And so, what we end up doing is uh, forcing Cuba to uh, install uh, the Platt Amendment, which is, among other things, uh, has this provision that gives the United States the right to intervene in Cuban uh, affairs uh, if things get bad enough. Essentially, if that, was ni- uh, that was nice. That was nicer than I thought. To yeah, let us was, just,
1: it, just send troops whenever we want.
0: Yeah, well, and it's it's funny because uh, one of the debates among historians is what was the kind of original intention of the Platt Amendment. Uh, And I think, you know, my my view is that if you look at the the author of it, the primary author of it, uh, Secretary of State or Secretary of War, Elihu Root, he, you know, I think he genuinely thought it would be a last resort. And he also genuinely thought it would never be used because part of the thought was, well, if we promise, if we tell the Cubans that we're going to intervene in their politics, if they ever have a civil war, the Cubans don't want us in their politics, and so they'll never have a civil mm-hmm. war. And it's this sort of what ends up being incredibly naive thinking that uh, ends up leading the U.S. to take a greater and greater role in the region. Uh, but that at least was the initial thinking. Um, but that's sort of like, the you know, and, and that is not a minor imposition on Cuban sovereignty, but that ends up being sort of the the lighter edge of interventions. As the kind of 19, you know, yeah, 19 odds and the 1910s go on, the interventions start to become much more hard-hitting. And so in 1905, uh, one other example of an intervention is something called customs receiverships. So the United States will come in and basically administer the custom houses of our neighbors, which is a little bit like the Chinese coming in to administer the IRS. Uh, And the reason that analogy works is because at the time, Latin American states essentially drew all of their revenues from taxing trade through -hmm. the custom houses. And so... Uh, If you controlled the custom houses, you controlled all internal revenue for the state of the Dominican Republic or Haiti or wherever. And so the U.S. starts coming in and essentially taking over these custom houses. And initially it's like consensual might not be completely the right word, but at least it's at the invitation of the Dominican government. Over time, this becomes much less consensual and we start taking over more custom houses. Uh, At first, we're just administering them. We're giving revenue to uh, to the central governments. Over time, we end up starting to use that financial leash to do other things. And so if we don't like the government or we don't like what the government's doing, we won't hand over the revenue and we start starving it of revenue. Um, We end up, obviously, uh, regime change. The First time the United States ever openly overthrows another government is in 1909 with Nicaragua. This starts to become a bit of a pattern over the next decade. And so we'll send gunships and basically uh, force uh, presidents and dictators off. They're uh, out of their presidential chairs. Uh, and finally, this all just culminates in occupations, uh, including, I think, the occupation of Haiti, which lasts for almost two decades from uh, 1915 to, I, I believe, 1934. And so that, that ends up being sort of the spectrum of, of U.S. intervention during this time. And it comes in a lot of flavors. But I think one of the points that I make in the book is that these sort of early intervention lights end up sort of leading to the heavier interventions, in part because they don't actually fix the problem that the United States is trying to solve.
1: Mm-hmm. The uh, on the on the controlling the customs. uh, What is it? the customs house? Is the
0: term or uh, customs receiverships? Yeah, what the custom houses? Yep.
1: Um. So yeah, I mean, we use that as a means of control. We also fear that European powers will use it as a means of control, right? And yes. And it's interesting the extent to which uh, both the perception of threat we have and the perception of threat that leads. Well, whether you want to call it threat percent, but, but but the motivation that leads some European powers to want to exert control over uh, here is about uh, is about financial matters and fear that the other one will control the commerce. Right. I mean, this was an actual European fear was that the U.S. Uh, government was going to basically control imports and exports for the whole hemisphere. And I guess w- one question is. I mean, how, how big a part uh, of, of the motivations, especially on the U.S. side, but but on both sides, were these kind of sheerly economic things? Um, and did did the nature of international economics subsequently change so that that kind of eventually ceased to be much of a factor per se or what?
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so that's actually a great question. Uh, one point to make at the start is uh, – Europeans were, as you mentioned, the European. The concern among American policymakers was that European nations would essentially come in and control these custom houses if the United States did not. And the reason why was because Europe basically was owed a lot of money by these countries. Um, but the thing that that statement kind of uh, obscures a little bit is that the money that was owed was not really so much debt on contracts, although that was part of it. It was more that under the international law of the time and to a lesser extent today, um, you know, if you're a European country and one of your citizens gets injured in a civil war or, you know, his property gets stolen, you as the European state can essentially champion their claims against the government in question. And as I mentioned, a lot of these countries are incredibly politically unstable. We're talking, you know, a new president every year, sometimes multiple times a year. And so in the context of all these civil wars and revolutions, these European states do kind of rack up enormous claims dealing uh, that stem from the kind of mistreatment of their citizens and property. And I think that ends up being actually much more important for European powers than the sort of, oh, my bankers went in and they signed a contract. And now, mm-hmm. you know, the government's trying to kind of welch on that. Um, it's just, you know, that that does play into it to some extent, but it ends up being, I think, a sort of secondary factor. Um and so, so you're right, so the American policymakers were a little bit worried that essentially to kind of make uh, these countries behave better that the European nations would sort of come in and, and start taking over the custom houses. Um, the the nice thing is that this the situation has improved in that respect in the intervening century in, in two ways. One, there's been an important development in international law in part, uh, I think originally sort of proposed by Latin American states themselves for sort of obvious reasons but uh, eventually championed by the United States to essentially make it unlawful for uh, powers to intervene on behalf of, for instance, like contract debts and things like that. And then kind of beyond that initial development, there's been obviously just more of a norm that you don't get to use military force against another nation just because you might have, you know, economic claims against them. So that's been a huge kind of development and one that the United States, I think, was very, very in favor of because it sort of eliminated part of the risk that the United States saw The other aspect of this, though, that I think has been helpful is that the sort of system of um, international arbitration, uh, particularly investor state arbitration that's been set up in especially, you know, the last half century or so has kind of ameliorated the concerns that a lot of these powers in general have about not not getting fair treatment, because Mm -hmm. it turns out that the record of essentially suing a state because they expropriated your property or whatever most of these claimants actually win and end up collecting on kind of the what whatever money they're owed and so because there's now a mechanism that doesn't involve using force and that mechanism works reasonably well i think it's actually kind of ameliorated some of the pressures you saw um the us responding to
1: yeah it would be nice to ameliorate all the pressures that lead to uh, yes. to war and and intervention uh, forceful intervention and there were attempts i mean uh you know, like who's uh, a James Blaine, the Secretary of State, who uh, wants to set up a system. This is in the late 19th century, where the way you're going to maintain order in Latin America is, you know, uh, a lot of international commerce, reciprocal trade relations, and the U.S. is going to facilitate arbitration. Of disputes. So it's kind of like a hemispheric court or something is the idea. And, you know, I would say broadly speaking, this is the direction in which you'd like to see the world evolve, right? You just have ways of solving disputes. Um, but, but these things seem never to work out uh, uh, well enough to prevent another round of intervention, right?
0: Yeah. I and mean, this actually, so Blaine definitely sort of pioneers uh, this approach, although he's not that successful at implementing it. But um, Elihu Rood, who I mentioned earlier, is the author of the Platt Amendment. By the time he he ends up being uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, secretary of state for essentially the second half of the Roosevelt administration, and he, is, uh, he ends up winning, I think, a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts uh, in favor of international arbitration. Um, and one of his big developments is he sets up this uh, Central American Court of Justice, this court that is meant to arbitrate all the disputes among the five Central American nations who are always at each other's throats, always invading each other and sort of causing problems. And he sees this explicitly as a way of fixing some of the disorder and kind of the the power vacuums that he's afraid are going to lead to European expansion. Uh, The court, though, ends up being a bit of a failure. Part of that, I think, is that subsequent administrations just don't take it seriously. And Woodrow Wilson eventually just ends up killing it because it gives a uh, a ruling on an issue that he doesn't like. And so he essentially uh, kind of chucks it out the window. Um, wait, who? Wait, which president was that? I mean, it. it. was Woodrow Wilson. Hmm. Um, uh, I didn't get as much into this in the book uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, the Central American Court essentially concludes that some that Wilson's attempt to corner the market on trans Transisthmian canals by uh, taking canal rights in Nicaragua is a violation of the uh, rights of its neighbors, and the United States doesn't like that, and so it essentially pulls the plug on the court. And so part of it is that these efforts. I think, don't really get the kind of um, the 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 care and energy that they deserve. Uh, it's sort of an interesting, you know, counterfactual to wonder what would have happened if you'd had subsequent administrations who had been as committed to them as Root would have been. On the other hand, though, there is the kind of underlying factor here that, you know, a lot of these nations, uh, it, it's not clear how seriously they take these institutions. And to large part, it does sort of seem like they're complying to the extent that they think that the US is going to be waving, you know, the big stick right behind the court. And if they don't comply, they're going to get, you know, intervened. And so, um, so, it, it, you know, it's a little hard to to do the counterfactual. Um, but the US, in some sense, does take this approach and then scale it up into kind of a global scale at the end of World War II. So, it's definitely kind well, of been a long, thing
1: and I gather that even uh, the failed attempt after World War One with the League of Nations was to some extent inspired by what's called Pan-Americanism, the, this idea of having kind of a lawful order within
0: the hemisphere. Right? I mean, some of the same people were involved. Oh yeah, I mean, and this is one of the things that I just found fascinating in this book because so much of our the way we think about history is Eurocentric or Eurasian centric, I guess would be a better way of putting it, in the sense that you know, post-World War II, start of the Cold War, uh, for a variety of reasons, American security interests have been really bound up with whatever happens in Eurasia. And so I think we have a tendency to go back and look at the rest of our history as a nation through those lines. Well, what was happening in Europe? What were we thinking about you know, in Europe and things like that? But the, the point that I think the book sort of, one of the themes of the book is that there is this sort of understanding among American policymakers that what happens in Latin America is really what matters most. And so a large part of the kind of efforts that we, uh, you know, pioneer at the global level, like the League of Nations or the United Nations or the IMF, the World Bank, all of these have roots in Latin America. And of course, that makes sense. That's the region where we've been most involved. That's the region where, you know, uh, whatever... It's not always fair to describe our attitude towards Europe as isolationist, but uh, at least there's an argument there. When it comes to the Western Hemisphere, there's just no argument. We've always been super involved. And so, so much of, I think, American foreign policy uh, in, you know, the kind of post-World War II era and post even World War I era really did grow out of what we were doing in our region beforehand, both Mm -hmm. good and bad, I should say.
1: So did you at any point add up all the interventions, uh, all the kind of I don't know what the term would be—extra legal intervention, or, or, or you know, in some sense, kind of du- uh, dubious interventions. Um, how many, roughly, in, in, in let, let's say, uh, I don't know, between the the enunciation of the Monroe Doctrine, even though there wasn't much enforcement of it for the for the first couple of decades, uh, say through World War One.
0: It's tricky to give an exact number, partially because it's a question of defining terms. Uh, So one of the kind of prevailing practices of the time was was that if there's like a civil war happening in a country, you can land your forces to protect your citizens, but they Mm -hmm. essentially just, you know, stay around whatever part of the city your citizens are in and don't really intervene, uh, intervene in the rest of the conflict. Um, If you include stuff like that as qualifying as a use of force or, you know, use or threat of force, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, but uh, it's going to be something, uh, I don't know if it's triple digits, but it's going to be a- approaching triple digits. Wow! Um, I can say from 1898 to 1918, we were using force against one of our neighbors an average of almost twice a year. Um, and again, some of those are relatively more minor uses of force to the extent that's a you know way that you can describe this. Others, you know, it's occupation of entire nations. And so we're really sort of Spans the spectrum and depends on what you kind of define as an an extra legal intervention. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And of course, there's also the. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I I was going to say there's also the difficulty of what counts as extra legal. So, you know, under the Platt Amendment, we had the right to intervene in Cuba as a legal matter. I mean, one thing that Root was very, very concerned about as one of the best lawyers of his generation was having a legal basis for doing everything the United States did. That was actually in large part why the Platt Amendment was framed the way it was. Um, and you know the Platt Amendment itself. I would I, I think it's fair to count it as a intervention in the sense that the U.S. told the Cubans, "Look, you can either let us continue occupying you, or even annex you, or you can gain your freedom with these conditions." And the Cubans chose the latter. Not exactly a fair choice uh, from the Cuban right. perspective, but.
1: And we got a pretty sweet deal with the Panama Canal Treaty, too, I would say, or whatever it's called.
0: Now, is it the
1: case, as I understand it, that, OK, so we signed that treaty, but then the person who signed it on the other side wasn't even an actual Panamanian. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he was he was just like French entrepreneur or something who could make money if we signed it. So, OK, you Yeah. It. The,
0: the, the Panama Canal story is just one of the I mean, just stranger than fiction, I think, through and through. There was this gentleman uh, by the name of. Uh. uh, uh Oh my gosh! I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Uh, imagine uh, a
1: French person. We'll just have to imagine a French person.
0: Yeah, he was well, French, he, right? Yeah, he's. Uh, it's a two. Buenavir-
1: isn't it a hyphenated name
0: or something? Or, it is. It's Philippe uh, Bono Buenavir- I think. Oh god! I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Hold on, let me look this. up.
1: I'll this look is, it up. You can. You can go ahead and answer.
0: No, no, no! This is. I, I am so embarrassed because. I yeah, cannot tell you how much time Looking I've spent. Looking it up these, won't help with the embarrassment. It's now matter of record that you couldn't remember it. I know, I know. I'm on record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Buenavarilla, I was right. Okay. Buenavarilla. So he is um, so this Frenchman who's involved in... So the French were trying to build the Panama Canal decades before the United States did. They fail, it goes bankrupt. Um, Buenavarilla is this Frenchman who was involved in the effort, and he's primarily an engineer. But for a variety of reasons, he becomes dedicated to having this canal finished under any means uh, kind of any way possible. And he concludes that the only way to do that is to have the United States build the canal. The problem is that Colombia essentially doesn't like the terms that uh, its representative and the United States representative negotiated for the canal. And so Colombia rejects- And, and Panama right. is- at, I
1: don't know if you said this in a misery but Panama is at that, what we call Panama was part of Colombia at that point.
0: Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. So Panama is still part of Colombia at this point. And Colombia rejects the treaty and Roosevelt is furious. Americans in general are annoyed. And Buenavarilla basically decides uh, that the only way to get the Americans to build the canal is for Panama to declare its independence and then to sign a canal treaty with the Americans. And the Panamanians are essentially on board with this because, from their perspective, having a canal through their state is going to be a massive economic boon. It's going to make their state kind of important for a variety of reasons. And so, uh, you know, skipping some of the sordid of details, the Panamanians do eventually launch this revolution. Uh, Buenavirla is heavily involved. He uh, finances a large part of it. Um, it's always hard to know how seriously to take him because his book is one of the most, I mean, his autobiography is just one of the most like puffed up pieces of sort of self uh, aggrandizement you can imagine. But it actually, as far as historians can tell, is like mostly accurate. Um but Panamanians uh, declare independence, and the United States essentially sends eight uh, warships down to prevent the Colombians from re- retaking the province. And so the United States helps Panama uh, declare independence. At this point, however, uh, you know, the US basically turns to the Panamanians and says, OK, let's negotiate this treaty. And Buenavarilla, in exchange for his help, made the Panamanian uh, uh, secessionists promise to make him their first representative of the Panamanian state in Washington. And they know that this is a bad idea. So they immediately send some actual Panamanians up to Washington to do the actual negotiations. But Buenavarilla doesn't really care very much about Panama, does not really care at all about Panama getting a good deal on this treaty or anything like that. And so he immediately turns around to Secretary of State John Hay and says, listen, I'll sign on whatever terms you want. The stronger you can make them for the United States, the better because we have to get this through the U.S. Senate. And Panama is not in a position to object because the only reason it's independent is because the U.S. warships are off its coast. And so uh and Hay signed this treaty that is just enormously favorable to the United States. Uh, when it goes before Congress, one of its opponents is, basically says, I've never seen a treaty that is this favorable to the United States. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Senate uh, passes it. And by the time the Pan- Panamanians arrive, it's just too late. It's already been signed. Um, and you know it, not by it's, him, it's not a, right?
1: i mean was not, it ultimately well, ratified in some uh, in what you would imagine would be a binding manner by some true representative of panama
0: <laughs> yeah so i mean the treaty i mean the treaty was signed by guanavarilla and he had he had the legal authority to he, sign he did it. The panamanians gave it to him okay. um and then it ends up being sent down to panama where it is in fact ratified by the the new regime okay. uh Again, not exactly a fair ratification process in the sense that, you know, it's not clear what other options they had. Um, The treaty is at the time, I think, greeted with some degree of enthusiasm by Panamanians, although I think it's in part because they don't really understand what it sort of means long term for their nation.
1: Mm -hmm. So Hawaii is another interesting case. Uh, I mean, that was just flat out taking it like we want it. We're taking it. I mean, we just annexed it. The the fear, as you said, was that Japan would annex it, and I think you said that although Americans disagreed, like in Congress, disagreed over whether annexation was necessary, none of them doubted that Japan's annexing it would be a grave threat. That was pretty much a matter of consensus. Um, what uh, and 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 you might start by reminding us uh, when this was and provide any details, but. Uh, I'm wondering what your take is on how sure it was that for Japan to annex, it would have been a great threat. Hawaii is pretty far away. Uh, so if you could elaborate on what exactly we feared and, and maybe start by filling in some of the, the
0: details on, uh, you know, when and so on. Sure. So Hawaii's is a really interesting case, I think, because in a lot of ways it's a sort of slow uh, motion or not even slow motion, but it's sort of a delayed version of what happened with the, Western Hemisphere as a whole when the, you know, Spanish conquistadors first came, right? And so part of the thing that they brought with them was germs and disease, and it ends up wiping out a huge proportion of, you know, the native inhabitants, uh, native inhabitants in a way that, you know, historians to this day still sort of debate exactly how that all happened. But you end up seeing something similar with Hawaii, where um, Europe doesn't discover, discover in quotation marks, Hawaii until relatively late into the 18th century, right. And so up until that point, the islands uh, basically been not exposed to European diseases and germs and all that. And then it gets hit extraordinarily hard by this wave of disease starting in the late 18th century. And so what ends up happening is that the Hawaiian population dwindles dramatically. Again, historians are kind of all over the map on the exact numbers, but you're talking easily, uh, you know, 80 90 percent of the kind of original inhabitants are wiped out by the time you're getting to Let's call it the mid 19th century. Um, this creates all sorts of problems. Uh, but from the US perspective, one of the things that really aggravates it is that Hawaii starts importing Japanese laborers at a very high rate to sort of man the sugarcane fields, in part because there's just not enough native Hawaiians to do the job anymore. Um, and uh, the other portion of the background that I think is necessary is that in uh, 1893, there's a coup. Uh, In Hawaii, where the essentially the white uh, residents of essentially Honolulu launch a coup against the then Native Hawaiian monarchy, overthrow her and establish this republic. Um, And from 1893 to 1898, there's this sort of awkward tension in American foreign policy, where on the one hand, Americans feel, at least the Democrats, have this sort of sense of, well, we definitely were involved in this coup. We should not, you know, we should not in any way annex Hawaii. Republicans, I think, are more in favor of it, but it's the sort of partisan debate about what to do with Hawaii. By 1897, though, the, uh, there's, for a variety of reasons, uh, the Japanese population on the island has become extremely, extremely large, and the Japanese nation itself is starting to demand voting rights for their laborers on the, uh, on the islands. And Americans, as well as the kind of reigning white uh, uh, Hawaiian Republic, are really concerned that this is going to essentially lead to Japanese domination of the island. And I think the numbers are fairly convincing that that was at least uh, not a a minor threat. And Japan was acting in a very aggressive way. And so what ends up happening is that the United States basically to preempt what it sees as a fairly imminent threat of Japanese intervention, signs an annexation treaty to annex the islands itself. Now, you asked why why do we care whether Hawaii is Japanese or not? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones is that the it's hard to overstate the strategic importance of Hawaii, particularly at the age that it was annexed, which is an age of steamship and coal and, and all that. And so if you look at where Hawaii is on the map, it's about 2,000 some miles from San Francisco, but it's also about 2,000 miles from anywhere else. It is uh, an extraordinarily unique area of the world in the sense that almost no other part of the world has so few uh is both you know an ocean itself and has so few actual islands there which means that in an era where you have steamships and the steamships require coal and coal requires coaling stations to pick up and you have only limited distances you can travel before you have to go to a st- uh, coal station hawaii ends up being essentially the only gas station in the middle of the entire pacific ocean mm-hmm. and so if you have an enemy for instance enemy nation like japan that controls hawaii uh, then they can attack the east or west coast of the United States with essentially no problem using Hawaii as sort of a base. If, on the other hand, the United States controls Hawaii, then there's really no way for the Japanese to attack the west coast at the, in this era because um, they simply would, wouldn't have the coal to make it there. And so mm-hmm. for naval strategists at the time, Hawaii is sort of seen as this uh, as this way of defending the west coast and basically making it in, in, invulnerable to enemy attack. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: Um so we haven't talked about Spanish-American War uh, partly I I just figured that's relatively well known but I one thing I wanted to say is uh I do think you say that it's actually one of the few cases where there was kind of a something like a public clamoring for American action am I right I mean by and large these things were decided by politicians by elites they weren't responding to popular pressure except maybe in the case of the Spanish American war.
0: Yeah. And and I think in the Spanish American war, I mean, the leads were for the most part on board as well. Uh, President McKinley was really the one along with a few of his sort of um, uh, more business oriented colleagues who was, I think more opposed to the war. Um, But that's right. I mean, the, the kind of conventional, uh, account of the Spanish-American War that you sometimes hear in, you know, like U.S. history classes is that it was, you know, the jingo press, the yellow press, and all that is vastly overstated. Uh, mm-hmm. I think historians at this point have sort of, for the most part, rejected that. Um, it, but it's true that there was, I think, as far as we can tell, there was no polling at the time or anything like that. It is true that there was concern or that there was a kind of broader uh desire on behalf of Americans to get involved, in part because it was just such a massive humanitarian disaster. Um, again, the numbers, you know, were sort you of mean debatable.
1: The, the main or
0: the or. Uh, oh, sorry. Before... Uh, the, the actual like. Uh, so the Spanish-American War, we intervened in a conflict that had already been going on for three years. So the Cubans had declared independence in 1895 and the Spanish had been basically trying to suppress them for three years. And it was an incredibly bloody war. The Spanish uh, used concentration camps to try and clear out the kind of Cuban insurgency. Um, they did not do a very good job at kind mm-hmm. of making sure that concentration camps were well provisioned. And so starvation was really rampant. Um, again, the numbers vary, but you can, you know, I, some of the figures that at least policymakers were receiving were that something like one third or one quarter of Cubans had died as a result of this conflict. I mean, just really, really atrocious humanitarian catastrophe right at our borders. And so for most Americans, that was sort of the context in which it seemed necessary to do something. And I think that something ended up becoming a military intervention after the U.S.'s main famously exploded uh, in Havana Harbor.
1: And when you say the media's role is now discounted by a lot of historians, you mean the media didn't actually actively fan the flames or just that it did, but it, that wasn't really necessary. You didn't need that much grassroots clamoring for uh,
0: for elites to decide to do this? More the latter, but it, it's more that the, the role of the yellow press itself is sort of overstated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the yellow press was actively making up stories and sort of sensationalizing the conflict, and each headline was more, you know, uh, kind of panicky than the last. Um, but at the same time, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that the yellow press was really Kind of read by large portions of the nation, and that those portions of the nation were particularly invested in going to conflict. It's more honestly when sort of more sober minded leaders and newspapers started taking up the call that I think you've really started to see this sort of nationwide momentum.
1: okay. Um, so listen,, uh, we've been doing this about an hour, uh, and uh, a thing we commonly do here is do the regular public podcast for an hour. And then uh do what is called in the industry some bonus content, move into overtime. You've been kind enough to to say you'll you'll stick with us for that. And the way you get access to that content is you become a paid subscriber of the non-zero newsletter. You can Google non-zero and substack. Um, or you can just uh consult the show notes in your podcast app where there's a link to a place uh where you can uh Become a non zero member, and then you have access to various kinds of uh things. There's the, the Friday uh parrot room, there's uh, a couple of uh, a couple of times a month, we we have something called Earthling Unplugged, and uh and then a lot of uh you know of of these overtime sessions uh, that are uh attached to the regular um podcast. Um, so I encourage, I thank everybody who's listening at all at this point uh, and certainly including those who aren't going to be with us uh, for overtime. but I encourage everyone to, to be with us. Uh, before we go, is there anything you want to say, uh, you know, to, to anybody who is going to uh, check out at this point, aside from buy your book, they should buy your book. About it, but I think it would be better if I said that it's called, we may dominate the world, ambition, anxiety, and the rise of the American Colossus really is very well-written thorough book clear in an analysis. Um, and, uh, but what else would you like to say?
0: I think that's about it. Um, I think the books for, you know, in some ways it's a book that's set in the Western hemisphere, but in a lot of ways, it's more a book about the U S relationship with Europe and more broadly sort of, you know, great power competition and how, how, uh, great powers and rising powers tend to act on the international scene. And so, yeah. If you're interested in that, if you're interested in spheres of influence, if you're interested in China's rise today, uh, I think it's it's worth a read. And
1: Hopefully. not just China's rise. I mean, I'll, I'll read one quote before we go into overtime. Uh, it says, you, this is from the book, says, making matters worse was the fact that just as the United States was rising to power, the region was slipping into new bouts of chaos and instability. The timing was no coincidence as the United States ended up massively destabilizing the region, the region and its clumsy attempts to stabilize it. The result was a self-reinforcing loop. Disorder caused interventions, and interventions caused disorder that sucked the United States deeper and deeper into the region's affairs. Some might say that reminds them of the Middle East over the past quarter century, but far be it from me to uh, note such parallels. Anyway, uh, we're going to – well, maybe we'll start by discussing that when we get into uh, overtime. So thanks, everybody who's, uh, who's listening this far.